Good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, I'd like to read Exodus chapter 4, and then we'll hear today's message. And I'm Romeo, by the way. (laughs) Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, had appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had come as white as snow. Now put it back into your, into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, that is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. As a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. And that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. 
The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Thank you so much, Romeo, and welcome to you all. If you're a guest or visitor here, my name is Dave, and you know, um, you might have had an experience like this, like there's this meeting, maybe there's a person that you're about to meet, and you just think, I could, I could never just approach that person and talk to them. I could never just, just chat him up, just chat her up. I, maybe you felt that way at times, and you know, there's some people that just don't have that sense of approachability. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, and now, sometimes approachability is really just about our own insecurities, but it can be a function of how the other person presents themselves. I think of this um, time that my, my family and I, we often will go to Tofino in the summer because I have a problem, an addiction to surfing. <laughs> and you can ask my wife a little bit more about that, but um, I'm a bit obsessive, and uh, we, we got there about two years ago, and we couldn't check in yet. And so naturally, I said, well, let's go rent surfboards and make our way to the beach for the afternoon. So we, so we did that. Um, we popped over to North Chesterman Beach. Now, there's legend that a certain icon of Canadian music can sometimes be spotted in the area. It's like someone's building a mystery around these star sightings. <laughs> but we're not here for that. We're here for the waves. We're here to surf. So the boys and I, we grab our surfboards, and they're playing in the kind of foamy waves right in front of me. I paddle out a little bit uh, deeper to the only place that I could see that had any waves of any size that day. So I, I, I paddle out, and just as I'm surfacing, I sit up on my board, and I, I look over, and my heart kind of skips a beat. I, like, I thought I recognized the person just, like, right there. Now, I wasn't totally sure, so I just thought, you know, I can't just say nothing, and so I took a risk. I, I, I look over at the woman. She's about 15 meters away, also just staring out on the horizon, looking for the next wave. I say, so my friends and I, at our graduation in 1998, we, we sang this song, I Will Remember You. And then she looks over at me, and I'm, yep, that's her. So now I'm fumbling toward something to say next. And uh, I said, are you writing any new material? Yeah, a little. So she knew that I knew who she was. Now, she wasn't rude, but I wasn't surprised that she didn't really want to chat. She's probably getting sick of people looking over here and be like, hey, are you Sarah McLaughlin? And then I saw the only wave worth paddling for in the last 10 minutes, and, I, and as I caught it, I popped up and I looked back over my shoulder, and she was on the same wave. So yes, Sarah and I were surfing together that day, and apparently we're on a first-name basis now. Um, but approachability is a two-way Street. Perhaps one of the most shocking things that we heard in our text today and that we've seen as we've started this series in Exodus is how willing God is to engage in dialogue and conversation with one of his creatures. Um, and these are like robust, real conversations. God, Yahweh, makes himself approachable without compromising or diminishing his 
holiness and awesomeness. And we see that in our text today. Uh, I was trying to think of an analogy, to, to, and it, it's, it seems like this. It seems almost like Moses is making friends with one of those high-voltage power transformers, the kind that an arc of an electricity can jump 10 feet and take you out. That's why there's fences around those, right, if you've ever seen them. And it's like he's made friends with this thing, and he's way too close. And he's arguing with his new friend who could send him, who could end him, pardon me, in an instant. And in the text we heard, he almost does. So today, we're going to dive deeper into looking at this approachability. We're going we're to talk about what it means to, to trust God, to just learn to trust Him. We're going to talk about how God works with our weakness, and we'll see what it means to reckon with the holy other. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father God, we thank You that You inspired this text to be written in just this way so that we might know You more. And we pray, Father, that as we've already been in connection with you through these songs and prayers, we pray now as we, as we look at your word in more detail that you would speak to our hearts, that if there's specific things you need to say to each one of us, God, we want, we want to say we're open to you, we're ready to hear you, so speak to us. And for your glory and our joy, we pray this, amen. So we've been talking about how the Exodus story is, is the central saving event up until the coming of Jesus, for, for God's people, for Israel and their history. And this is the place where they meet the living God as God is. He reveals his, his name. And this story, then, is a key part of God's self-unveiling. Uh, last week, we saw, as we went through Exodus 3, that when, when God first calls Moses to meet him at the burning bush, he sends him to be an agent of liberation, to free his people from slavery in Egypt. And so, fair enough, Moses has a few big questions, two big questions. First, he's being asked to approach the world's superpower and demand that he let his people go. Talk about an intimidating task. And so, Moses has these logical questions. First of all, in verse 11 in chapter 3, he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Like, you want me to do what now? (laughs) To which God responds, I will be with you. And that leads to the next logical questions. Okay, well, if you'll be with me, who who are you? Moses, we saw last week, was raised in Egypt. He was raised in a polytheistic setting. They, They believed there was many gods. And so he's like, which of the gods are you? Tell me which one you are. And as we saw last week, however, God's answer essentially evades this idea of of being able to be slotted into just the pecking order of the gods. So instead of giving him just a name, the Lord answers with a whole sentence. He says, I am who I am. Or maybe, as we saw, better translated, I will be who I will be. And, And Ricky did a great job last week of showing that this is This is God's way of saying to us, you cannot define me. You cannot box me in. You cannot control me. You can't pin me down. You can't slot me into that pecking order of the so-called gods. Buckle up. I'll show you who I am. And that's what the rest of the Exodus narrative is, is God showing us God. So God reveals himself, and and he calls his people out of slavery. And so we keep circling back to this question now. 
going deeper and deeper into what do we mean when we say God. And our text today continues that conversation. It picks up from that conversation with God and Moses and begins with the big concern Moses has with the whole plan. Look at verse 1 if you've got your Bibles open. Moses asks, he says, what if they, being my people, do not believe me or listen to me? And they say, well, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, uh, scholar Chris Wright in his excellent little commentary, not little, it's actually very large, <laughs> um, in, his, in his excellent commentary, he points out that this isn't so much a question, that doesn't totally capture the essence of it here in the Hebrew. He says it's more of a statement. See, God has just said in Exodus 3.18, he says, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Statement from God. Moses is flatly contradicting that. As Wright paraphrases, he says, Moses is essentially saying, look, let's be realistic they will not believe me. They will not listen to me. So here's the first thing we need to see today. Yahweh doesn't scold Moses. He doesn't belittle him. He doesn't begin with, don't contradict me. Don't you know who I am? He works with Moses. Even granting that Moses could, in fact, be correct. He could be validated in his concern that people aren't going to listen to him. God takes Moses seriously. This is a real conversation, and that's the first thing we just need to key in on today is that Yahweh is relational. Moses is learning to trust the Lord who is deeply personal. See, the Holy One doesn't override Moses. He doesn't force Moses, and he won't force you either. What does he do? Well, he says, Moses, what's in your hand? So enter the staff, and this is going to be an important feature of the rest of the Exodus story. Now, a shepherd's staff, that's just a common tool. That's just a thing he works with every day. But what's going on here? Well, he tells Moses to throw it to the ground. And when it becomes a reptile, this is a dramatic sign that God has the ability to intervene into the natural order. He can do the miraculous, which will become really significant in the ten plagues that are about to show up. And so it says to us there's no space, meteorological or zoological that is outside of God's reign. Now, in my weird brain, I kind of picture this scene a little bit like a training montage, like a Rocky IV, remember that one? Or Cool Runnings. There's, and, and I actually went and researched like training montages, and there is, there's like a trope, there's like a whole thing that they go through. It begins with the reason, like there's the mission that's presented. Rocky has to defeat Ivan Draco, okay? Moses has to like stand up to the ruler the superpower of the known world. Um, then the second thing is there, there's the, this won't be easy acknowledgement. It's, you know, the guys in Cool Running have never even seen snow, and yet they're going to run a bobsled. Moses, he gets that, right? And then the third thing is the feats of strength. Now, there's this, this is where the difference comes in. Unlike Rocky, who like runs up the mountain with the log on his back, you remember that scene? I do. Anyways, Moses... Moses is learning to trust in God's strength, not his own. He's learning that his confidence is in Yahweh, not in him. See, later in the story, the people of Israel are going to be caught between the Red Sea on the one hand and Pharaoh's army chasing them on the other, and they freak out. They say to Moses in Exodus 14, 11, they say, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? It's a good question. And Moses starting right here in this scene, has begun the process of learning to trust in Yahweh, 
And he's able to say this. This is his answer. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Just be still. That confidence, where does that come from? Well, begins to build in this conversation. See, the fact that God tells Moses to pick the snake up by the tail, that is a dodgy move. I googled it. The Ontario government website says, never pick up a snake by the tail. And there's good reason. That's how it bites you. It just whips around and bites you. And so, for God to tell Moses to pick it up by the tail, that's not lost on Moses. He is having to act in trust to what Yahweh says. And, and when we think of the bigger story here as well, we, we got to recognize that, that Moses is rightfully fearful of a venomous snake, as he should be. We recoil at the idea of being bitten, for sure. That's an instinct of get away from danger, but we also have to recognize that the pharaoh on his headdress wore a symbol, and that symbol was a snake. That symbol was a snake of pharaoh's royal authority. So, it's no coincidence that God turns this thing into a snake and says, grab it by the tail. He's giving Moses the authority to step over Pharaoh's royal authority and say, actually, you're going to be the one who's leading the way here. God is granting Moses authority to overthrow the Pharaoh in this action. But here's, notice this as well, Moses has to act in trust in order to build his trust. He has to trust God by actually reaching out and grabbing this snake by the tail. And when he does, he finds out that God is trustworthy. The same is true for us. We, like, how do you grow in faith? We listen to the Word of God, as Moses did. It's now recorded in the Scriptures. And then we trust what it says by acting on what it says. This is what the scriptures say. I will build my trust in God by doing what he's asked me to do. So let me ask, you know, what's that thing, maybe? Just ask yourself that. What's that thing that's making your knees knock right now? Making that lump in your chest kind of rise up? Is it a fear that if you follow his ways, it won't be for your ultimate good? Maybe for you it shows up in the area of finances, like you're worried about money, and so you lack generosity. You're worried that God's not going to take care of you, and so you stop the practice of sacrificial giving, whether that's giving to support missionaries, to give to mercy ministries, to give to your local church. Or maybe it's about relationships. Maybe we're saying, like, God, you can have all these other areas of my life, but I will keep this part under my own control. Thank you very much. I'll do it my way. Let me ask how that's working out for you. I meet a lot of people, okay, and I talk to them about their relationships. It doesn't work out very well to not trust what God says. So like Moses, our faith is deepened as we step out in obedience to God. When we do what God says, we find him faithful, and our confidence in Yahweh grows and grows. But it's a scary task he's been asked to do. It really is. So even now, that we see in the story, after these three signs, Moses is still in this, in this space of wrestling 
with his own inadequacy. He says this, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, we even hear it in the English translations, and Hebrew is the same. This is an incredibly eloquent speech. Scholars point out how ironic this is. This is beautifully poetic, well-structured, eloquent sentence saying I'm not eloquent. I think it's hilarious. I think we're meant to notice it. Whether Moses' lack of eloquence is real or if it's just perceived, God challenges his logic. Who gave humans mouths? Like, do you think that if I call you to do something, I can't supply what you need to do it? Do you know who I am? And the issue comes up. After God gives him this logical response, Moses just says flatly, please send someone else. Yes, Yahweh is slow to anger. We're going to find that out. He says that of himself in Exodus 34, but that patience doesn't mean he will never get angry. He gave Moses this space to push back, but it does have a boundary. There is a line, and Moses now crosses it. This is the first time in the Bible that, we will, that, that God is described as having his anger burn against someone. Interestingly, it's against the guy he called to do his work. He gave Moses that space, and Moses steps over it. God does have limits. God does get angry. But notice, too, God doesn't discard Moses. He doesn't disqualify him. He's also the God who is gracious and compassionate, that he's abounding in love. And so he even accommodates. He says, I know your brother Aaron can speak. He's actually on his way already. It's like God knew the end of this story. He's already sent Aaron, his brother, to meet him. And so God accommodates Moses, even his sense of inadequacy. This is a real relationship, a give and take. So what are the implications for us? Well, there might be a tendency to look at Moses' reluctance and to be a bit judgy, to think, oh, yeah, no, if God calls you to do something, you just like jump in there and do it. That's what faith looks like. Yeah, sometimes. And sometimes the task is just huge. It's daunting. It's massive. And wrestling with God and wrestling with your own sense of inadequacy, that's a part of the faith journey. That's actually what faith looks like. It is going to be a wrestling match sometimes. So our take-home can't be as simple as, well, don't be like Moses here. No. He has enough self-awareness to at least understand his own inadequacies. This is a massive leadership task. And he knows it. See, what if he had just jumped in and, and, and said, okay, God, I'm your man. I've got the skills. I know the court of Pharaoh. I grew up there. I can speak the language. I've got a proven heart for justice. Sign me up. If he had said that, we'd think, man, I don't know that he understands quite what God is asking of him here, quite the gravity of his calling. Now, those are actually good reasons Uh, why Moses is the right person. But God tends to find people who, who know it won't be their gifts or their charisma or their charm or their smarts that get the job done. See, the measure of faith isn't how easily you said yes, but your perseverance and trust in God when everything goes wrong, when it gets hard. And then you stay. See, if Moses had entered the task without all the wrestling, I think it would have been really easy for him to exit as well. 
It's this robust engagement, honesty, directness with God that is forged in his call experience. That's what's going to sustain Moses throughout the rest of his leadership. See, much later in the story of the Bible, Paul, he was called to be a missionary by Jesus to the Gentile people. And he says, uh, he's writing a, a letter to a group of people in Corinth, and he says that God gives him this thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. He doesn't tell us. Uh, some think it's probably a physical ailment, maybe an eye disease. That's why he's, you know, I write with such large handwriting and talks about these kinds of things as he closes his letters. We don't really know what it is, but after pleading with God three times, please take this away. Please, I don't want this. God, heal me of this sickness, this this illness, this thorn in the flesh. God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Basically, God says to Paul, no. No, I want you to struggle with this thing. This pain fuels your trust in me, your dependence on me. So Paul is basically saying, and, and I think this, this, we need to hear this as well, that God might even send difficulties, allow the challenges to remain that will humble us, that will get the pride out of us. Because this is how Paul concludes. He says, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. This is why Paul will will write in a different letter to that same group of people, to the group in Corinth. They are people who are really attracted to the attractive, the strong, the gifted, the eloquent. And he tells them, just look at your own resume, folks. He says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Basically, your resume is trash based on your standards. But then look what he goes on to say. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify or to bring to nothing the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Remember team captains picking teams? They still do that. I don't know. Did did they do that anymore? I got a thumbs up over there and I got a no from a teacher over here. So... Okay, team captains, you'll have to think back then. But you remember, right? You would have two team captains, and they pick everybody, and then you have the picked last ones. And some of you are like, ouch, it still hurts. I know. Paul is saying that Jesus' team is full of picked last ones. I think that's good news. I think that's actually God's preferred way of working. To take what the world says is too little insignificant, just not smart enough. It's broken. And to say, great, I pick you. I want you. Now, we need to be careful. This isn't to say that capability is bad. That's, that's not what Paul is getting at here. Moses and Paul are actually well-equipped at the human level to do the things that God is asking them to do. The issue is boasting. God is not interested, it seems. As I read through the Scripture, He's not interested in working with people who are full of themselves. So perhaps, like Moses, you believe that God would do better to find someone else to do that thing he's calling you to do. And here's what I just, every one of us is called to be on mission with God. All of us have been drawn in. If you're, if you're a believer, you have been drawn into, caught up in 
God's work in the world. He has things for you to do, important things, ways of serving the church, ways of serving your neighborhood, your work, those you work with. You are a part of the team, but you might be saying like Moses, I can't do it. Find someone else. I don't, I don't, no, just find someone else. But here's the thing. No one else is you. No one else is you. No one else has the unique combination of gifts and life experience and heartbreaks and the connections in your workplace or in your home that you do. No one else has your friendship with God. That's unique to you. And God wants to work with you. Believe me, I feel Moses here. If, if you asked my wife about me in my undergrad years, she would tell you flatly that I could not put two sentences together in a coherent way. It just wouldn't make sense. Um, I would try, and it didn't go very well. Um, I was kicked out of university in my second year. I feel Moses here. <laughs> that sense of inadequacy, of not up for the taskness, that's me. I actually wasn't sure I wanted to be a pastor when I first applied, well, I was first asked to apply here at Summit Drive over 16 years ago. I didn't know. I didn't really know what God was calling me to. I didn't know if this was the thing he had for me. And now I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And I feel desperately in need of God's help every single day to do it. Every Wednesday, I hit a wall. It's usually Wednesday. It's Wednesday morning. I've got all the books open, and I'm like, God, what? How am I supposed to do this, God? I do not get it. And he's finally like, okay, now I can work with you. Let's get down to business. Every week. So here's the question. Are you wrestling over something that God is calling you into? Wrestle. Because he wants to get rid of your self-reliance. And then get to work. Moses does at the end of the day, at the end of the conversation, still pick up that staff, still talk to his father-in-law and say, I guess I'm going to Egypt. Let your sense of inadequacy grow your faith in God as you take these next steps. Now, so far we've seen that God initiates a real conversation. He's intimately involved with Moses. He even accommodates himself to Moses' concerns. There's this approachability we see, but that's not all we see. I'm, like, there's that one part, right? I even saw, Romeo, when you're reading it, you're like, how do I say this out loud on stage, Right? <laughs> There's that bit that's strange, and that's to put it mildly. That bit where at, it says it's at night, and the Lord confronts Moses and was about to kill him. And we go, like, there's a big old question mark in the margin of my Bible next to that. Uh, like, what on earth? Like, God has just called Moses. He's had this long conversation with him. He's made provisions of him to meet his brother Aaron. There's this back and forth. God promises his presence to go with Moses. And now God is trying to kill him. It's one of the most baffling passages in the whole Bible. And what do we do with it? <laughs> well, the other night I was lying in bed. And I was thinking about this text, as one does. And then I, I, I remembered the comments I'd made about flannel graph, like those characters that you stick on flannel graph at, in Sunday school. At least they did when I was in Sunday school. And I burst out laughing. 
my poor wife. I'm just chuckling to myself. I'm vibrating on my side of the bed. And See, I was thinking about how no one ever does flannel graph of this part of the story, the part where um, God is trying to kill Moses, and then <laughs> Zipporah takes a flint knife and cuts off her son's foreskin and then touches it to Moses' feet. You just don't see the flannel graph of that story. So I think we can be truly grateful for that. But here it is. It's in the text. One of the most baffling passages in the whole Bible, but the Spirit-inspired narrator chose to include this story. Didn't have to, but does. Why? Well, remember, Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. This is for teaching us. What is the living God saying to us through this? Well, here's my best stab at it. The text starts with Yahweh's imminence, his closeness, his approachability, but there's much, much more that Moses needs to learn about the living God. See, God has just promised that he will finally free his people, Israel, but only after the firstborn sons of Pharaoh and the Egyptians will die. For as God says, Israel is my firstborn son and you didn't let him go. So there's going to be a reckoning for you and all who threw those baby Hebrew boys into the Nile River to die. There's going to be a reckoning. But Moses, too, will experience a reckoning. See, he was about three months old when his mom put him in that basket and pushed him out into the river. He would have undergone the non-negotiable sign of God's covenant people that all Israelite baby boys would be circumcised on the eighth day. He would be reminded every time he used the bathroom what covenant faithfulness to God requires. Yet Moses has failed to circumcise his own son. And so as Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson put it, God, or pardon me, Moses has neglected God's commandment and now stands outside the mark of sonship under the same judgment as Pharaoh. So, not for the first time, a woman comes to Moses' rescue. See, Moses needed to know that the God he meets at the burning bush is no tame deity. He needs to reckon for himself with the reality that Pharaoh will face, that the living God means business. Yahweh is not to be trifled with. And so this micro-exodus points ahead to the provision that God will make for us to be saved as well. As Zipporah covers Moses with the blood, and as the Passover lamb and its blood will be put on the doorposts of the homes in Israel, so the greatest exodus will come when Jesus' blood is on the beams of a wooden cross. His blood will cover the sins of anyone who chooses to put their trust in him. Ultimately, God himself becomes the sacrifice that will free and forgive us, that will protect us, that assures us of God's deep love. This text, confusing as it is, I think it reminds us of the awe and reverence that God is due. And yet, it also pushes our eyes to look forward to see how the holy God has made provision so that we can be near to him. This God, the one who confronts Moses here, is the same God who invites you and I to come boldly before him. Just listen to how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his, Jesus' body, 
And since we have a great high priest, again, it's Jesus here as the referent, over the house of God, let us draw near to God, near to that God. The one Moses meets here, we are told to draw near to with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. That is how the holy God draws us near to himself. He does this for you, for us. And then he says, walk with me. I was reminded as I was preparing this of um, the book, The Horse and His Boy, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, and how Shasta, the main character, uh, ends up meeting this holy other. You'll know in the story that Jesus is represented by this lion, Aslan. And so Shasta is riding along, it's pitch black, he's all on his own, and he's beginning to feel very sorry for himself. But then he becomes suddenly aware of a presence with him, and he's terrified. Let me read this section to you. It was pitch dark, and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. And then this thing begins a conversation with Shasta, even asks Shasta, tell me, your sorrow. So he experiences this thing he doesn't know as one who's compassionate, who cares about him. And then Shasta asks, I'm reading again here, who, who are you? Myself, says the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad, too. Glad, trembling. I think that's right. I think that's what it's like to come into the presence of the living God. We come trembling, yes, but with gladness because he has come near. We sang today, I am yours and you, God, are mine. That's what Moses came to see here. That's what Shasta experiences and that is what, through Jesus, we can know as well. Do you know it? We invite the worship team to come and I'm going to pray as they do. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for what we discover in this text, that you are the God who is approachable and mighty. And I want to ask, Father, for those who are here, and maybe they are just exploring who you are, Father, I, I pray that you would, your presence would, would be with them this morning.
that you would show yourself to be the one who is utterly holy and yet who comes to us, who approaches us, calls us to be yours. We thank you that it's through the blood of Jesus that we can approach you, our holy God, and that we can know you truly. And Lord, for those who are feeling inadequate, feel like, God, you wouldn't want to use me. There's too much that's messed up, too much that's broken. God, I pray that you'd be speaking to their hearts, reminding them that, that we walk with you and we serve you not based on our performance, but based on what your son Jesus has accomplished. So let us respond to your voice again, maybe with wrestling, but ultimately with trusting.